I wanted to write about architecture, not so much as a subset of sculpture, which is one way of looking at architecture purely in its formal and material invention. But I saw it as, as I had since I was a child, as a thing intimately connected to how we live, who we are. Welcome to Arcanic Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia Taylor-Hochberg, and this week, January 18th, 2016, I speak with Michael Kimmelman, architecture critic for The New York Times. I wanted to talk with Kimmelman specifically about a piece he had published just at the end of last year, called Dear Architects, Sound Matters. The piece considers how an architectural space's unique audio atmosphere helps create its overall personality, invariably affecting us as we experience it. Alongside Kimmelman's writing in the piece are looped videos of different spaces— The New York Times' office, a restaurant, the High Line, Penn Station, a penthouse, and others. And these are meant to be viewed while wearing headphones to get to know that space's sonic portrait of sorts. Too often, says Kimmelman, architects don't think of sound as a material like they would concrete, glass, or wood, when it can have a profound effect on the design's overall impact. In our interview, Kimmelman shares how the piece came to be and how it fits into the Times' overall push into more multimedia journalism. We also discuss how Kimmelman's role as a former chief art critic for the Times influences his architecture criticism and how multimedia and VR may affect the discipline. So let's start out with this particular piece, The Dear Architect Sound Matters. This was published to a great bunch of positive response in the last couple of weeks. And I wanted to just ask, how did you get the idea for this particular type of piece? Where did it come from? Well, it came really from a number of different places. I mean, you know, I have a background as a musician, and so you know, part of me thinks about things like sound in in space as uh, in architecture generally. It's always been a thought that's on my mind. I'm aware, you know, of places where the sound is good or bad or in some way interesting. But I guess it was in the back of my mind, and then. I began last year in 2015 to try to think of ways to use the new sort of digital tools that the Times is so um, anxious to explore to think about how they might express ideas about architecture and our experience of it that would go beyond what, you know, we've been able to do in the newspaper or even online uh, up till now. So I began to think about, you know, using essentially one of the things you can do uh, over the web, which is to listen and then to try to use the the form of writing an article as a way in which people could read along, not just with photographs or videos in this case, but with Europop. Did you actually happen on anyone viewing the article like out in space if you were, say, riding the subway or something like that and you see someone on their smartphone flicking through the article with headphones in? Just by chance, did you ever come across something like that? Or have you been able to talk with people who are just readers about how they received the piece? Yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of readers. I have to say that the New York City subways, as I mentioned in the article, are really loud, so they don't really, <laughs> not really the best place to listen to a, a story, which is what you're doing, listening to a story, essentially, in which you're supposed to tell um, real differences between one kind of space and another. But yeah, people have responded in a really wonderful way with the kind of, you know, aha that I'd I'd hoped. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I, I, sh- I should say that it was actually talking years ago with, with Peter Zumthor, the Swiss architect, whose, whose architecture does involve so many senses, including sound, and who has talked to me in the past about how he designed spaces for sound. And I remember when he started to talk to me about that, my having my own aha moments in some of his projects, you know, feel, realizing that I was experiencing a place orally, not just in terms of the space 
and delight and so forth. And I think, you know, a lot of the satisfaction I got out of this was that people had that kind of aha thing, like, oh, yeah, I, I realized that there is a way in which one kind of a door or another, one kind of a space or another has an effect on me, which has been unconscious, but definitely affects my emotions and the ways in which I, I react to the places I move through. So that, that's really been uh, the most important thing about this. And then, as I said, also, I think just being able to convey to people a broader spectrum of the richness and complexity of the ways in which we understand and experience architecture, you know, that's also been uh, part of the goal, and I'm, I'm glad people got it. Yeah, it seems like a very compelling and obviously very exciting new form and format for a critic in any regard, but particularly in architecture, to use and put into their toolkit of how they're presenting their interpretations and their criticism to, the, to a greater public and to reach as wide an audience as, as possible. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more then about on the process of putting the piece together and, and working with not just editors or, or people in the more traditional critical journalistic hierarchy, but like sound designers and um, other multimedia people that were working and putting the piece together. What was the kind of professional working relationship like for the piece? Yeah, you know, the the team that I worked with, uh, Alicia DeSantis and Graham Roberts and John Wang, who uh, who put this together under the, uh, the leadership of a guy named Steve Duenas. So there's a whole digital crew there at the Times who are just fantastic. I had worked with them on a review of the Whitney Museum, which opened last year as well. And so we'd been through this process before. And when we did the Whitney, I sort of knew what I was going to say. And I knew oh, the kind of things I, I wanted them to try to express digitally. That had to do with moving through the building, situating it in a neighborhood, in the city, seeing the building not just as a you know, two-dimensional photograph from different angles, but really as something that exists in space and that people experience in space and time. And that was, again, something that you, know, you can do digitally. Um, they did a remarkable job there, and, and that was a lot of fun. But after that, we said, let's, let's continue working, but maybe we can do a project more from the ground up, not just you know, you have this idea and we'll try to realize it. So I proposed sound. And then we spent, to be honest with you, a lot of time just kind of talking back and forth. And I realized that I knew what I wanted to do, but it was difficult for them to see how it would really work digitally. You know, this was one of the interesting things you can, about a project like this, you can picture it from one, from your perspective as a writer. But of course, you know, that's not the same perspective as somebody who has to imagine creatively these digital tools that can express these ideas and in ways that they felt were creative from, you know, as I say, from their point of view. So actually a lot of months passed in which we would just sort of talk about it without um, figuring out what the best illustrations could be of these thoughts. Um, and I have to credit them you know, largely with coming up with uh, the, the examples. I would provide them with lots of different kinds of examples, but they're the ones who really, you know, figured out how to express the difference between a train station in New York City and one in Paris and, you know, what the value of photographing, of, of, of filming and recording the sound of room in the public library would be. And I, I think that they came up with stuff like the, the miraculous moment in which there's a a woman sitting in the office of the New York Times <laughs> eating a potato chip, which, um, you know, one of these serendipitous, wonderful things. And that woman was very generously agreed to let us use it, you know, which, from my perspective, really make this article work. I mean, in a way, my idea is kind of stupid, you know, just like stupid because it's obvious sound is a part of our experience of architecture and space. 
but then to to really convey that in a way that's uh, memorable that was what they that's what they do so we talked a lot and we would meet and and they would show me stuff and then in the typical way that journalism works everything happened at the last minute <laughs> <laughs> which would worked out fine in this case so when I saw the basic format of the piece, I imagined that there could have been other instances where you might have imagined doing things a little bit more impromptu and almost like a, a live streaming aspect of being able to mm -hmm. check in at these different stations or areas or different architectural forms at different times and be able to compare things in a much more spontaneous and therefore risky way. But what I did appreciate about the piece is that there are these loops of segments in each space. And so you do get into this, into this kind of relaxed and very um, reflective zone of really grooving on whatever it feels like to be in that space based very much on your, you know, you're frozen in a visual perspective. You don't have the choice to look around. You're not quite in that VR mode yet, but yep. you're at that point of being able to be immersed orally, a U orally. So it's something that can be extremely affecting. And I think that the potato chip thing is what people, it was all, strangely a little bit divisive because people thought, oh, well, why would I want to hear that? But then it's like, well, that's by hearing that, that's what tells you what's significant about that space in the first place. Right. And we live in that space. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and you mentioned Zumtor as like kind of an initial inspirador for this piece. Are there other architects that you see working today that have a similar sensitivity towards sound? You know, that's an interesting question because I think all architects would say on some level they care about sound. And, you know, there are architects, I'm, I mean, I've talked to a bunch about this. And one of the really um, interesting things was that they themselves would often call me back and say, actually, here's a case of something where I really think in terms of sound. I mentioned in the article, Rick's video was called me back about places that actually had a you know, powerful oral memory for him, which he hadn't thought of in the beginning. But his partner, Liz Diller, then pointed out how in their design for Alice Tully Hall, the concert hall at Lincoln Center, not that the concert hall itself was acoustically designed, which of course it is, and which is not really my point, mm -hmm. but that they had thought about the ways in which you moved from the street into the lobby, into a kind of another anteroom, into a hall, and then uh, that is a passageway that then opens onto the concert hall. And that that sequence is a, is a sequence, an oral sequence as well, of different kinds of removals from the sound space you had occupied before to enter a completely new kind of sound space, the concert hall. And Renzo Piano mentioned to me, he called me back as well after I'd asked him this question about how much does sound matter in his work. And he remembered having designed this cultural center in New Caledonia, celebrating Kanak culture. And how it's really a series of pavilions, almost these kind of uh, incompleted egg-shaped pavilions, each of which makes a different kind of sound as the wind passes through it, a very purposeful part of the design that had to do with traditional kind of culture and the way sound uh, is an element in their architecture. So, I mean, I think that I think there are a lot of architects who, on some level, have incorporated issues of sound into into their work. But I would still say that I think most architects, you know, architects have so much on their plate, of course, and there's so many requirements and, and placed by the client and otherwise, and also so many financial constraints that very often sound is not something explicitly requested. I want a room with a certain kind of sound in it. It's hard even to know what to ask for. And then it's hard to design those spaces. It's hard to model them. So that I think it's it's not really foremost in the architect's vocabulary. And I guess part of my desire was to say, look, somehow this shouldn't this also be part of an architect's toolkit, the kind of thing that can create beautiful, meaningful 
space in the same way that we think about light and materials, which are inseparable in a sense from a sensation like sound. Yeah, I don't think you would really run into many critics talking to our architects knowing that that was trying to encourage that as something that is more valued. But I think you might run into issues of just, yeah, like you said, already so much on the plate. But I wonder then when you were writing this piece and also just considering talking to architects, did you also speak to like sound artists? Because obviously you spoke with audio technicians or such, or people who are acoustical engineers or so, but specifically in the world of art, did you speak and with and get some information from people who identify as sound artists as, and to kind of distinguish what they do in terms of creating something like maybe sound sculptures or spaces with very specific sound atmospheres, as opposed to the architect who is concerned with those same questions? You know, for years I, I wrote about art, and um, so of course I'm familiar with sound artists, but I didn't actually think about them very much because I it wasn't really for me a question of whether it was possible to create distinctive spaces orally, but that every space in a sense has an oral personality, a trait for better and worse, and that the things that common everyday spaces need to be thought of a little more carefully, or in any case, that's unconsciously we experience them on this level. So I wasn't looking for examples so much of people who had identified sound as a way of, though you're quite right to point out that it's making this issue clear, but I hadn't done that because I really wanted more for people to sense that this was not a special thing, something that was an art project, or as I mentioned in the article, a a thing that was designed specifically for sound, like a concert hall, or even a restaurant, which is perhaps, you know, designed to make a lot of noise so that people feel they're in a busy happy place. I wanted it to be perceived as something that exists in our lives all the time. And I have to also say that Zumtor was important in, in this, in another sense, in pointing out, as I mentioned in the article, that, you know, sound is a is a kind of almost unnoticed, but, but a plague-like hmm. <laughs> a part of our experience of cities today, in the way that mail used to be in the Middle Ages. And so, again, it was really a desire not to, to talk about the exceptional work or the artful effort, but the way in which it's it's something which once we realize it's there, we might begin to deal with in a more serious way. Hmm. One of the people who contacted me afterwards is doing a project at MIT on trying to see the way in which sounds can be used to control moods in places. That means, for instance, possibly playing certain kinds of music or sounds on, let's say, an airline in order to hasten the rhythm by which people deboard <laughs> or to calm people who are going into an MRI or, or such things, mm. and uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. And so there was this question that came up in the conversation, which is, well, of course, how much is sound that's actually created for spaces? How much is that universally experienced? Your, your you know, calming new age music for, you know, a trip to the spa may be exactly what drives me completely mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how much are we aware of the sounds that we are, that's being that's piped in around us all the time? Most of the time, I, I think we're not until the sound is removed. And so it's often the absence of sound, in fact, that is really most affecting, but it's hard to achieve because in most places, most buildings, for instance, we are, have some kind of, uh, I should say most office buildings anyway, you know, have some sort of mechanical system, which is constantly making noise in order to fake the notion of silence. It's actually a very noisy space, but mm. it creates what we think we're not hearing, which is this, you know, sort of background noise. Well, yeah, then there's a couple of sensitivities going on. Of course, there's cultural sensitivities 
that you can, it's impossible to provide for every type of cultural sensitivity. So if you're planning for any type of public space, the idea of piping in share versus um, some type of hardcore metal, and not everyone <laughs> is going to be happy no matter what. Exactly. And oftentimes, at least I would like to say that for architects, I would think that the ideal sound is one that arises organically, that isn't necessarily prescribed upon the space, but that is created from a positive inhabiting of the space and activity of this in the space that is not overwhelming. It's just like you have in the busy restaurant that where the, the noise and the atmosphere comes out of the activity. But I was wondering, and particularly you mentioned, because obviously you were the head art critic for the New York Times previously to writing for architecture. And that seems to me to be an obvious link. But I was wondering if you could talk about what that transition was like more generally of switching from writing art criticism to architecture criticism. And, and also because of your own position as a concert pianist and having that kind of sensitivity. Uh-huh. Sure. Well, you know, I, I was an art critic for a long time, but I kind of fell into that job in a way. I had studied art history and in graduate school, and it was obviously something that I cared a lot about. But I started as an art critic when I was very young and really learned the job, you know, in public. So I spent a lot of time just, you know, the early years just trying not to make a complete idiot of myself and then, you know, found a way to do the job. But I put it this way because, well, I came to love much of what I was doing and came to love and respect many artists and people in the art world and, and so forth. I hadn't chosen that path, actually. It was something that I just kind of happened in a very happy but unexpected way. And from an early age, I, I had um, I grew up in Grinch Village in New York and had always been interested in architecture and design and had uh, edited between college and graduate school uh, an, an architecture and design magazine and so after I'd done the art job for a while, I, I got restless and um, was trying to do other things to keep it interesting for me, not just reviewing shows. And then I uh, went to Europe to start a column, which was an attempt to return to some of my earliest ideas about why I wanted to write about culture, to connect culture to politics and social affairs, and to see it as something that wasn't like as the art world had become so connected to fashion and money, but something that was inextricably tied up with our identity and our fortunes in the true sense. And I loved doing that job of writing throughout Europe and the Middle East. So when the architecture job came up, it, it was in a certain sense, not a very unnatural transition for me. It was in a sense, uh, returning to things that were fun, I considered fundamental and had always been my first interest. And of course, that's because I wanted to write about architecture, not so much as a subset of sculpture, which is one way of looking at architecture, purely in its formal and material invention, which is important and meaningful. But I saw it as, as I had since I was a child and, you know, in Jacob's neighborhood as, as a thing intimately connected to how we live, who we are. And, and I, my respect for architecture and architects, and uh, and that includes planners and uh, landscape architects and the whole wide profession has to do with the fact that it is so complex and it involves so much uh, in the way of politics and economics and social affairs, and it requires compromise and high principles, and it determines you know our daily our daily lives, and it's a very public uh, endeavor. So all those things, in a certain sense, for me were were a way of celebrating architecture in its in its richness and were uh, my first interests in in the notion of culture as a as a journalistic endeavor and it seems like a natural 
application for something like multimedia journalism to attach itself to architecture criticism, if indeed that that can at least credit and give more credit or give more um, stronger legs to that kind of wide berth that you're talking about? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that in the sense, certainly consciously in the sense that, for instance, in, in the Whitney project to say that the building that Renzo Piano designed there cannot entirely be understood through photographs, which have over the years created a notion of what architecture should look like. Um, that's been a back and forth process so that architecture, which is considered interesting, looks good in photographs. But my sense is that building actually is a rather interesting example of, of something that is hard to translate into photographs, doesn't actually translate very well into two dimensions, and is hard to understand except uh, three-dimensionally and experienced inside and out and understood in relation to the surrounding neighborhood. Otherwise, it's, it looks kind of awkward and uh, inchoate. So yes, I think digital tools that are available do reinforce an idea which can be expressed through a building like that of architecture as a part of our daily experience, our, the, the public life, and um, that it has to be um, understood as something three-dimensional and temporal and economic uh, and social. So then do you have a two-part question? Um, do you have any future plans for other multimedia architectural criticism projects that you'd like to develop with at the Times? And the second part is that whether you are not able to use these things, say if you're either for whatever reason, if you have to, if you're stuck in specifically the written medium, what is the most important consideration that all architecture critics must keep in mind? <laughs> Choose whichever one you'd like to start with. Yeah. So, of course, I'm excited to, uh, about doing as many of these projects as we can. But as you can see, we got two done in one year. The, the, the <laughs> people I work with, you know, have a lot on their plates. I'm not, they're not, this is not all they're doing. I'm one of the innumerable supplicants of the times hoping to eke out a little of their precious uh, time. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm game to do lots more and I, I do have some ideas. I'm not quite sure I want to tell you what they are <laughs> before they happen, but. Yes, there's a range of them. It's, it's, you know, it's so wonderful to be presented with new technological possibilities that let you rethink the way you do your job and open up new vistas, but also that um, are collaborative because, of course, you know, for writers and especially critics, it's a, you know, it's a pretty solitary endeavor usually. So it's nice to, um, I know this from music too, it's nice to be able to collaborate and uh, to feed off of somebody else's creativity and ideas. And as far as giving, uh, as far as, I mean, the the sad fact of being left alone to write, I have to say that everything I do, and that includes the sound piece, I want to be able to stand on its own as a writer. That's important to me that not have no life as just a written thing. And, you know, that means that much of the, basically everything I do, I think, has to somehow be clearly expressed in, in words. You know, what we do as critics is try to convey ideas and, and uh, beliefs and uh, be advocates and writers, good writers. And that's, there are a lot of them out there uh, who are writing about architecture, thankfully. And I think it's a field rich in, uh, rich in healthy conversation and sort of amazing journalism. I know that's, a, that's not the usual thing to say. Everyone likes to complain that uh, there's not good enough stuff out there. But I think there's a lot of uh, people who are doing really good work. They certainly don't need my advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to pitch your next architecture multimedia piece as an engagement with monuments and any type of architectural landmark that isn't explicitly used for, say, a programmatic function, but like for tourism and some type of um, overall sig uh, cultural significance. 
what I would love to read and experience is a multimedia engagement with architecture criticism of monuments. But by, by monuments, what do you mean? Like the Lincoln Memorial or what are you talking about? Exactly. Like highly iconic, not specifically architecturally programmed spaces such as towards, you know, war memorials or populars or public figures or so. Things that are often recreated in architectural either media as just solely as images or an art, but also are strong uh, tourism drivers so that people say the Pantheon or such like that. Right. I mean, how one actually experiences them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's my uh, that's my shot in the dark. That's your vote. <laughs> that's my All vote. Right, I'll put that I'll put that on the list. That's interesting. I have a I have a list and I will put it on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, no, it's, I mean, monuments are interesting because, of course, you know, they're both very well known and there's a lot of television and other stuff about very famous monuments, but they're not often talked about really in terms of public space or you know, as architecture necessarily. Um, I mean, obviously the Parthenon is, but the Pantheon is. But I assume you're talking about things like Mount Rushmore or whatever, things that are... Precisely. What first came to mind was something like Myelin's Vietnam Memorial, which is something that, of course, many people are inundated with images of that, but there's really nothing that can compare with the visitation. And that's that's how it may... It might always have to be that way, and that's fine, but... No, no, no. But I, I think that's where VR comes in, too, because, um, you know, it, it's going to open up, um, and that's obviously on my agenda as well, um, <laughs> it opens up a whole new range of ways of experiencing space. Um, and the Myelin, you know, Vietnam Memorial is a, it's a very good example. It is something very hard to understand from photographs. And even plans, which not everybody can read, of course, doesn't convey the particular emotional and formal uh, impact of it uh, in the way that it, as you feel actually moving through it. So regarding VR, just as maybe one final question, what do you think is the major offering that VR technology can give to both architecture critics and architects, practicing architects? You know, I'm going to sidestep that question because I haven't worked with VR yet and I don't, and there's probably an intelligent way to answer that question, which I can't do now. Okay, that's fair. And what I would say would be purely speculative. My guess is would be as like yours, <laughs> unless you've done it already. I have actually, but I don't have nearly as much experience as I think anyone should have. There's some really interesting research that goes along with what it means to be in VR environments for longer than, you know, a minute or however. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on Archonnect Sessions one-to-one. It was great to talk with you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me. Thanks for listening to our one-to-one interview with Michael Kimmelman. Dani Lovoynov edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed the music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday, and to make sure you don't miss the latest One to One interview, subscribe to us on iTunes. To keep up with podcasting news in general from Arconnect, follow us on Twitter through at ArcSessions, that's at A-R-C-H Sessions, or hashtag Arconnect Sessions. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can also email us through connect at Thanks again for listening to One to One.